Today's programme, with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra leader Bernard Doherty, conducted by Leo Hussain, we're going to be looking at a particularly important work of Peter Maxwell Davis, a work that's particularly dear to his own heart, A Reel of Seven Fishermen. It's somewhere between a symphony, a tone poem, and maybe something else, as we'll be hearing today. But first of all, before we welcome Max himself, let's have a little bit of a taster of this. This is part of the first movement. Part of the prologue, the call of the sea, to Peter Maxwell Davis's Reel of Seven Fishermen. Well, that's my prologue over. It's time now to welcome the composer himself, please, Peter Maxwell Davis. Max, welcome. This is one of those extraordinarily atmospheric pieces that have come out of your own fascination with your home on the island of Orkney. What was it that drew you to Orkney? I left uh, London and Dorset because there was too much noise. In London, obviously, there's too much noise anyway, particularly as it's directly, a lot of it is directly on the flight path to Heathrow. And in Dorset, there are military air bases all over the south of England, and wherever you are, you can hear a motorway in the distance. Mm. And I didn't like it. And I wanted to find somewhere where you could actually hear your own thoughts. So Orkney, I went there for a holiday in 1970, and I just fell in love with the place. The weather was dreech and damp and really miserable, and I thought that was wonderful because... Uh, <laughs> It just concentrated your mind so much. I loved the cathedral, I loved the prehistoric monuments, and I met a lot of people, including George Mackay Brown, the poet, who became very close friends. And I think perhaps there was one of those days which are influential on the whole life, 
that you live after that. There was one of those days when I went out to Rackwick on Hoy and I'd been reading George Mackay Brown's Orkney Tapestry overnight in the hotel in Kirkwall. I could not put it down. I didn't even go to bed. I set out very early for Stromness, took this boat over to Hoy and on the boat was a fellow who was a friend of George Mackay Brown and we got talking and he said, well, I'm having lunch with George Mackay Brown in Rackwick, so why don't you come along? And so I was taken along and met all these wonderful people, including George, and we had a lot of whiskey, beer and wine, and <laughs> the rain pelted down, and George Mackay Brown said, looking up the hillside, well, there's that cottage up there, that would make a wonderful place for you to write your music. And as a step to that, I borrowed from the GP, the doctor in Stromness, the house that we were in, in Rackwick, the Muckle House, which was a holiday home for him. Um, went all the way from Stromness to Hoyt. And I went there in winter and wrote, I think the first things I wrote there were the scores for The Devils, the Ken Russell film, and The Boyfriend, the other Ken Russell film I did, very inappropriate in a way, but I, I borrowed that cottage, eventually got permission to do up the house on the hill, which George had pointed out, and I stayed there ever since. And very soon you were writing pieces that, to the surprise of some people back in London, were beginning to reflect your intense involvement with this, and particularly with, with the sea. I'm thinking, for, for, for example, of the first symphony of the Mirror of Whitening Light. Yes, in a place like Rackwick, where, first of all, I borrowed the Muckle House from the doctor, particularly in winter, spent a wonderful time there writing my music, surrounded by the sea, if you like, crashing just underneath the house, high wind, wonderful sounds, not like aeroplanes, very small sounds, like wind in dry heather. These were the sounds that I really loved and got to love, and uh, it was a realisation of a long, long dream about living by the sea. Well, we're going to turn to a much later work. This is your extraordinary three-part tone poem or symphonic poem, The Reel of Seven Fishermen. And the prologue, as we've already heard, is called The Call of the Sea. Now, I think it's important here to, to stress that it's not just about creating atmosphere. Your involvement with this is about all sorts of things that are directly intrinsic to the way the sea moves and works. So um, we've chosen some extracts to break down the beginning of this piece and look at some of the kind of sea-like ways that this music works. First of all, could we just hear the piece from the beginning? <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, elemental is very much the kind of word that comes to mind listening to that sort of thing. But we have some key ingredients which you've chosen here. I think you particularly wanted to hear what the cellos are doing at the beginning, this rather watery, rippling figuration at the bottom. I think this is more or less self-explanatory in oceanic terms. Now, that's the kind of flowing figure that often turns up in your music. Is, is it purely abstract for you, or is it in some way evocative or suggestive? Yes, it is evocative, but not intentionally so. It does suggest to me the all-embracing presence of the sea, and when I hear it, I get homesick, <laughs> which I think answers the question. It certainly does. <laughs> crucial going on at the same time as that figure, we have this little seminal figure that's going on in the horns and violins. Now that does seem in the context of a piece when we hear it later to be really germinal, almost like one of those motives in a Sibelius symphony. Is, is that the way you think of it? It's uh, two lines, and they're arranged on top of each other, and it's just basically a scale, but they make that dissonance and a resolution, a dissonance and a resolution, a very simple idea, and it gives you that kind of very physical sense mm. of uh, the rhythm of, for me, and I don't know if this is necessarily for anybody else, but it does immediately suggest to me the waves doing that and going back and crashing on the shore and going back at various strengths and various intensities. Although, obviously, that is in my head and it's not necessarily going to be in anybody else's. But that is absolutely crucial to the whole piece, that little motif, particularly in the brass or in the horns. And it's strongly memorable, that's a crucial thing. Yes. And an awful lot of contemporary music, the basic material isn't the kind of stuff that you can fix your ears on immediately. It's, <laughs> not, it's not easy to do so. I think it's quite crucial that you've given some that the ear can identify and hold on to. I think when we're discussing a work like this, if it doesn't lodge itself into the ear, there's no point talking about it because it can't follow the process. <laughs> and they always try at least to make some kind of material which is going to be memorable, uh, not necessarily a pretty tune or a very obvious rhythm, but at least something like that interval dissonance going to the re resolution, dissonance mm. going to the resolution, which isn't new, but at least you recognize it. <laughs> Absolutely. There's another very important sound, which is, for me is strongly associated with some of your later music, and particularly if it's as of an oceanic tendency, is the way you use the trombones. The, the phrase that came to my mind was a kind of elemental chorale a hymn tune. Okay. Particularly the heavy brass, as it's called, I feel that, thanks to my very early experience of Sibelius with the Halley Orchestra and John Barbaroli, I completely fell in love with that when I was a quite a young schoolboy. I've had this very special regard for, I think, I hope, a sensitive use of horns and trombones as something which is quite ritualistic in these pieces, mm -hmm. so that they're not there just for heavy color or whatever, they're very much a part of a formal ritual.
Well, you mentioned the significance of George Mackay Brown as friend and as inspiration. And a poem by George Mackay Brown, The Reel of Seven Fishermen, is the basis for this piece we're talking about today. So I think it's time we heard it. Here it is, read for us by Ian McRae. Her hands put flame among the peats. The old one took three fish from the smoke. Cod off the snook, drifting, an undersea song. She sank buckets in the cold burn. The old one broke a bannock in three. A withershin step, a cry, a steeple of wings. She turned quernstones, circle on circle. The book lay open, two white halves. Twelve arms sought the cold dancer. She squeezed oil in the black lamps. The old one spread the kirkyard shirt. Twelve feet beat on the hill, a dance. Her hands brought fish and ale to the table. The old one sowed a winter thorn. Twelve feet stood in the door, a dance. Sea streamed like blood on the floor. They shrieked, gull mouths. Then bride and mother bowed to the black music. It's full of potent images there, a very obviously pre-Christian magical rite to do with the sea, placating the sea, the power of the sea, the women involved in it. This is matriarchal poetry here. And this image of seven fishermen going out and six coming back, there's something magical but even about the numbers here, a suggestion that some very primal, very ancient form of ritual is being enacted in this particular magical story. In his poetry and this one, the poem which is the inspiration for the work under discussion, he created an English language for himself out of his Orcadian speech without using fancy words, but uniting the ritual of the agricultural and fishing year with his own very strongly held Roman Catholic, he was a Roman Catholic convert, Roman Catholic beliefs and the ritual of the church. And so there were two kinds of ritual in his work which really appealed to me. And the man's simplicity and his sheer joy in the small things of life which he raised, and I use the word again, the drinking of a a glass of home brew with George became a sacred ritual in no kind of pompous way, but one which, because it was so intense, you enjoyed all the more. And I think his poetry is like that. It has that intensity. In your note to the score of The Reel of Seven Fishermen, you said that you haven't tried to illustrate the poem so much as try and distill its essence. Um, I think you said you listened out for its essence, distilled from the sea and the rocks below your window in Hoym. Yes, the poem summed up something which was felt on the island very strongly because there was another tragedy. Uh, two men were killed, drowned, fishing, and of course, in a small community like that, it makes a very, very big hole and there's a lot of grief and a lot of mourning. And I've experienced that on Sunday as well, 
when I moved to Sandy 10 years ago. Exactly the same tragedy, a father and son, uh, they were drowned out fishing in a very small boat. And I think something of observing and taking part in a community like that, experiencing what I think of as a primal grief. It's terrible, but it's also something which you never ever forget. And I think George's poem sums it up so extremely well in terms of Rackwick, where I was living. Of course, the crofts were all empty when I was there, except my own and one other, but the ruins are there, and they all bear witness to that kind of tragedy. So, as a composer, I'm always saying, you bear witness as well and as faithfully and truthfully as you can. And in this piece, I was bearing witness to the experience, which, of course, George had had right through his life, of fishermen going down, and which I had experienced as well. And an experience which a lot of modern life, for most of us, cuts us off from, doesn't it? It, it removes it from the whole business of death and the fragility of human life. It, uh, I think modern life, it does rather unfortunately cut us off from those primal experiences. But if I can just make a very small point. As a small boy, I was bombed in Manchester. And the sheer panic of windows crashing in and looking out on a street with a lady on fire, followed by her children on fire, screaming, running up the street out of the flames. It's the kind of thing you never forget, another primal experience, the impact of death. The, one of the oldest abiding subjects in art, isn't it? it How is. we make sense of some kind of, come to some kind of accommodation with mortality. And we have to do in order to be able to live because death is always there. And writing a work like this, it's my own effort to bear witness and to come to terms. Hmm. Well, to get down to rather more abstract issues like structure, the reel of Seven Fishermen, your piece, is in three movements, just as the verses are in three lines. Um, why did you choose to set it in three movements? And, and, and tell us a little bit about the titles of the movements as well. The first movement, the call of the sea, well, it's something which I have seen so often that in a family where perhaps grandfather was lost and members of the family have been lost to sea, the boy wants to go to sea. Mm -hmm. And it's something which seems to be absolutely irresistible. There's no reason for it that you can fathom. It's something which is not talked about, but to see he or they will go. And in that first movement with the extraordinary wave shapes that I tried to create, I hope they, are, they do come through, and something of the effort that went in to make them into extraordinary shapes is perceptible. The sheer yearning that I think that that, the, the call to the sea, it's a very important part of life for those people, and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else, so it's probably now a very important part of my life. Mm. And the next movement, the main movement of the piece, which is the actual reel, um, it's not just a reel, it's based on all sorts of Scottish fiddle music, but it places a human activity in that very abstract sea and landscape where, and here I don't want to sound moralizing because I'm the last person who ever should moralize, but it does give me a perspective when you place 
a human activity in the middle of music which is resonant, as this is, I think, with the forces of nature all around it, the force of the sea, of the storms, of the wind, of the sun. And you feel that big as a human being. Very small and insignificant. But I think that's all right, because at least you're feeling, and you're feeling a relationship with that. And here, the dance, it takes over, and you hear dance music coming through, all these sea rhythms. And I think it places the human being in a context where you are forced to come to terms with that huge power out there, for me, symbolized up so much, just wrapped up in the sea. Well, we'll come to the epilogue, I think, after that. But for the moment, since you've been talking so eloquently about this irresistible call of the sea, I think we've had good time to hear a bit more of that first movement. Let's take it from where we left off earlier in the programme. Yes, in your notes you talk about the clarinet calling out like a great seabird. I think see exactly what you mean at that point. But at the same time, it's very clear, isn't it, that the clarinet is developing symphonically that dadum dadum figure from the opening. Thanks very much indeed to our clarinetist Barry Deacon for that splendid impersonation of a great seabird. At the same time, there's a kind of prefiguring there, isn't there, of you, as you're talking about putting man in the equation? Because we've got that da-dum, da-dum. Now, to somebody from outside the world of Scottish folk music who still finds it fascinating, there is that archetypal rhythm, which is sometimes called the Scotch snap, isn't yes, that right? Yes, there is. I think it, it places the piece. Hmm. here in Scotland very, very clearly at every step. 
oh. that particular rhythm, which comes from speech too, yes. obviously. Oh, well, most folk music, the rhythms and comes the contours come from the speech, don't yes. they? Yes, fascinating yes. examples all over the world. Yes. And, and that element is continued, it goes on developing also symphonically as the piece proceeds, doesn't it? We have this little figure a little, a little later on on the woodwind. We've let it run on a little bit as well, so we can hear that very eloquent string theme that follows there. But there's another important ancient ingredient, isn't there, finding its way into that, into that string theme? Yes. There's a plain song I was using, the Crux Fidelis. I like to use plain song not only because I like the, the tunes very much, and when I was a student in Rome, I used to go several times every week up to the Benedictine Monastery on the Aventine Hill, Sant'Anselmo, with my Liber Usualis, the Book of Plain Song for the Year, and just follow what they were doing, and had a wonderful time doing that, really got to know what it was all about. And then, when I was still a student, I particularly liked this idea that a lot of those plain songs like this one, Crooks Fidelis, they've gone through so many composers' imaginations and they've been used in such a way as, say, an icon is used, a visual icon that people have been appealing to for help, if you like, that that item takes on an inner glow and it seems to have something more than either its pure painted surface, or in the case of the plain song, the, the notes of which it consists. It's got an inner glow. And that, with the idea of it having stimulated so many composers' imaginations through the ages, particularly in the medieval and renaissance period, I find that very, very appealing. We should hear the music, though, of the chant at this point. So over to the BBC Scottish's principal horn, David Flack, please, for a performance of Crooks Fidelis. Thank you, David Flack. 
Now, maybe we can pick out a few ways in which you've used this thing. Now, for one thing, I think you, you turned the order of the first two notes round, haven't you? I uh, just found that I needed an upbeat, so I added one, and I took that liberty. But I think, apart from that, the rest of it is perfectly recognisable. It is, but it also means that with the ba-dum, yep. you've then drawn right into that opening da-dum, yes. da-dum figure the, from the beginning of the piece. And it had to be because that became absolutely structural to the whole piece, yes. Mm. And we can hear that very clearly in the first phrase of that big string tune yeah. from the first movement. There, you may not have thought plain song immediately when you first heard that tune, but now it's rather obvious, isn't it, after we've heard the original? Yes. Crooks Fidelis, the title means the true cross. So here again is our actor Ian McRae to read the words in translation for us. Faithful cross above all other, one and only noble tree. None in foliage, none in blossom, none in fruit thy peer may be. Sweet the wood and sweetest iron, Sweetest weight is hung on thee. Sing, my tongue, the glorious battle. Sing the last, the dread affray. O'er the cross, the victor's trophy. Sound the high triumphal lay. How the pains of death enduring, Earth's Redeemer won the day. He endured the nails, the spitting, vinegar and spear and reed. From that holy body broken, blood and water forth proceed. Earth and stars and sky and ocean, by that flood from stain are freed. Bend thy boughs, O tree of glory, thy two rigid sinews bend. And a while the stubborn hardness which they birth bestowed suspend. And king of heavenly beauty, on thy bosom gently tend. Thou alone wast counted worthy this world's ransom to uphold. For a shipwrecked race preparing harbour like the ark of old. With the sacred blood anointed from the smitten lamb that rolled. Strong words, very strong words. I prefer it in Latin. Yes, still works rather well there, I think. That, I, th I think when you do it in English, it has overtones of the um, Protestant church and it loses some of that extraordinary rawness which the Latin has and has all sorts of overtones. So it's a purely personal thing. Let's just have a reminder of the opening of the Crooks Fidelis chant.
Perhaps you could take us through a few further examples of how you've used this Crooks idea, particularly that opening phrase. You've got one from the beginning of the second movement, yes, the real. Yes, let's hear one from the second movement, the real proper. Same tune, but different context. It's the same phrase, but combined with the with the the da dum dum figures. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. And just a little later on in the movement, you've picked out something else as well. What's happening here? I can hear this kind of movement intensifying. Yes, yes. The intervals change. You transform the intervals, and you keep the shape, but the intervals transform, and you build the intensity. Yes, this is absolutely not the way that people who were taught 12-tone composition were to encouraged to think worthy. The motive was absolutely primal. With you, it's something that's supple. It's always changing, isn't it? It's all based on transformation mm. and the idea that the ear can take in transformations happening to given material. Well, if we hear the whole of that short passage yes. now, I think it should be even clearer. Yep. Players have often complained that my time signatures change too much and it's very hard to follow. Well, if you watch anything in nature or listen to anything in nature, nature isn't always in 4-4. And particularly if you stand and feel the rhythms through the soles of your feet and your very body in a very small boat when you've got, say, as one has so often at home, uh, one set of uh, impulses coming in from the Atlantic and another coming here from the North Sea and they meet and that boat is doing that and you're feeling these various rhythms through your body, they're not in 4-4. Just <laughs> as here, they aren't in 4-4. It, it makes me think sometimes I'm in a small boat when I'm conducting one of these pieces. It has that, for me, very pleasurable feeling. <laughs> it's not just one undertow, but two or even yes, more going yes. on at the same time. Yes, yes, I see exactly what you mean. Um, but there's there's also another aspect of this second movement, the real, um, to do with magic, to do with ritual, to do with superstition. We've already touched on this, but maybe if Ian would please just pick out a little bit from the, the Mackay Brown poem that, that really, I think, homes in on this magical element. The old one broke a bannock in three, a withershin step, a cry, a steeple of wings. She turned quernstones circle on circle. A withershin step. Now, I can imagine that's, that's a sort of backwards movement, isn't it? A kind of retrograde. That's, is that right? Yes, yes. Yeah. If you walk around a stone circle with a shin, that is against the sun, uh, you get bad luck. Ooh. You don't do it. And a withershin step is going to offend the household gods or the um, hog boon in the house, the spirit, the guardian spirit. Uh, and it's a very bad thing to do. And this piece, I try, you can't, you can't actually do it in music. You can't go backwards. If you quite simply invert material so that you start at what was the front and play it through to the back, or the back through to the front, there is no relationship between them that the ear can pick up. So mm. it's a conceit. It doesn't exist. You have to find another way to do it. 
Well, we'll hear a little breakdown of that in a second, but beforehand we've got a rather nice little bit of archive, an old man from Stromness being interviewed, we'll hear the interviewer first, talking about all these things, that you, the unmentionables, the things that you mustn't do on Orkney, quite a lot of them it sounds like it as well. You would have been going then as a boy of ten with some old, quite old fishermen. Did they still have the old fishing superstitions at that time? Oh, some of them were very queer. <laughs> they were? <laughs> what kind of superstitions would they have? Oh, well, certain things you didn't have to say. Words that you didn't have to say Aye. on board? <laughs> Can you remember any of them at all? Oh, well, about animals, about rabbits or pigs or salmon. <laughs> rabbits or pigs or salmon? <laughs> And was there any kinds of people you had didn't have to mention? Oh, there's some old women. In the town itself? Yes. Why, were they regarded as... Oh, witches. Witchy persons. <laughs> Se seriously? Oh, they... Some took it up very bad. They did? Aye. Well, if they happened to meet such a woman on their way to fishing... Oh, they would turn back. They'd turn back? Oh, yes. That leads beautifully into this whole business about turning back and, again, always being on the watch and, and this destabilising effect. You've picked out just a few examples from the second movement to show. I think we start with, with, with just the tuba, first of all. Yes. Is the tuba based on the, the true cross at this point? It's, the song? It is indeed. Yeah. instrument the tuba isn't it <laughs> now against that you've got something very different on the trombones what's going on here yes it goes right back to the opening of the piece and this dissonance resolution dissonance resolution uh, it does to me suggest a crossing it is if you like a cross which is there inside the texture over and over again and underpinning what's happening with the true cross in the tuba So if we put the true cross in the tuba against that genuinely crosswise movement yeah. in the trombones, we get this sort of Withershins effect, as we it do. were. Yes. Now, we've already heard a few examples from the second, but this really is the heart of the piece, isn't it? The it real, is. And the subtitle is The Door of Water. Yes. And this brings us to the subject of, of the dance. Um, uh, to what extent did you actually rely on genuine Scottish reels in this piece? Do you, do you quote literally, or do you, again, just, just imitate? No, I invented material which related to the basic material which I was using right through the piece, and I just invented material which didn't only recall the real but other dance forms. And they, as I said earlier, they come in and out of the texture here, as it were, putting humanity in a context. 
And these ideas become more, you might say, flavoursome, don't they, as this, this piece develops? Yes, uh, I think that one feels one's feet wanting to begin to tap, although when a boat's doing that, they're not going to tap all that regularly. But the impulse is becoming present. So I think we're getting the idea. Trying to think, trying to dance on, the, on, the, on a boat in the Pentland Firth <laughs> might not be a bad way to get some of the way this piece starts. Yes. But the dance ideas do become much more definite, I think, as this movement progresses. Or the yes, energy picks yes. up. The energy levels pick up, and some of it, it really does sound like a drunken dance. We've got a slightly longer example now to show, I think, how this continual development of these dancing figures, which I think we, maybe we've now got in our mind a bit, work against that sort of Crooks Fidelis idea which is going on in the background. Okay. Very strong sense for me there of those um, dance rhythms getting all the more stronger. I can see you dancing yep. on the ferry. At the same time, these powerful undertows, these undercurrents, almost hostile, working yep. in the game. It reminds me that dancing, in particularly in medieval poetry and earlier, isn't just about having a good time often. It's something about something elemental. We think of the dance of death, or yes. we were talking earlier about Bergman's film, The Seventh Scenal, weren't we? Yes. Um, I, when I, I was... Um, recording, in a way, if you like, when I was writing this, a near-death experience I had while collecting driftwood. You know that you shouldn't turn your back on the sea anyway, but uh, I was collecting driftwood down on the shore at Rackwick at about six o'clock in the morning, and um, I turned my back, and the seventh wave came along and picked me up. Uh, I was 
underwater, I don't know how long, but you can't do anything about it. The current is far, far too strong, but the sea didn't want me yet. I was, it spat me out again, and I finished up on the rocks, completely exhausted, very frightened, cut all over, and my bag of driftwood was bobbing away already about half a mile out to sea. And it's one of those things that you recover from, and you uh, go home and you make a cup of tea and you get warm. <laughs> but you never forget it. And that dance of death feel, it does permeate the last part of this movement, and it comes directly from that pretty diabolical experience that I had when I thought, right, this is it, I'm going, the sea's got me. This is the passage that, that illustrates that encounter for you. Yes. moment when, as the phrase in the poem puts it, you almost bowed to the black music yourself. Indeed, yes, and it was black music. Very literally, that is, for me, black music. I get there are some very bright sounds in there, some very typical sounds for you, actually. Those bell sounds, the crotals, the glockenspiel, yes. that kind of thing. Those have been part of your way of thinking for a long time, haven't they? Well, I think those very high uh, percussion colours and sometimes the um, high strings, which just make a sforzando, loud for a moment and then it goes away to almost nothing so that the texture shimmers. I think they come directly from the visual impact of light on the sea. Mm. And it's something which is with you all the time. Mm. And even inside the house you have ripples across the yeah. ceiling and inside the room coming directly mm. from the sea outside. And it's a part of life and something which I love and I would miss if I had to live without it now. Well, that brings us rather neatly to the last moment, which we haven't looked at yet, the epilogue, which brings in another phrase from later in the Crooks Fidelis plain song. And also, the, this is where the plain song, I think, becomes particularly relevant, because in that last verse, there's a marvellous line, isn't there, about the cross becomes the harbour prepared for the shipwreck race. Yes. Was that in yes. your mind? Surely it must have been. Yes, yes, it was very much that this is the, the harbour rest, if you like, after you've gone through that door when um, you've gone down with the boat. And it's very much a contemplation of last things and some kind of possible redemption. I don't know. I'm um, not a Catholic. I'm not even a Christian. But these things are very important to me. And uh, I know that for a lot of people, these things are absolutely life-saving. And um, in a funny way, they are for me too, although... Um, I am very conscious that the God images which we project 
they're part of our humanity, and as soon as humanity dies, they think that God would die, and there's something much, much bigger than that concept all around, particularly as we are aware that there are different dimensions of which we are not aware, mm. and so on and so on. But uh, There are more things in heaven and earth. More things in heaven and earth. But uh, I do um, love the poetry of the Mass. I love the idea of redemption, there are lots of things which I'm very, very keen on, like the creed, although I don't know what it means. And uh, I, I think that these, used as abstract musical symbols, they can have an enormous meaning, even when one might quarrel with the literary sense of the words which one cannot make out. And I think the sense of redemption and of coming to some kind of peace at the end of this work, in the third movement, for me, it's a very important resolution to the whole experience of nearly being drowned, of other people being drowned at sea, and living with death in that very dangerous place, a house right on the seashore. Let's have a look at how this redemptive process works musically, because there is a very interesting parallel going yes, on here. Yes. Just go back to the very opening of the piece, and again, and hear that horn and violin figure that was so seminal in the Reel of Seven Fishermen. Those two-note figures, that suspension, they're right behind the opening of the last movement, aren't they? But they're yes. transformed into something quite different now by the sound of the strings. Yes, yes. Um, the, the sound of the strings, which is the same material, it's transformed into something which has lost all that tension. There is a tension, but it's a much more resigned tension. And just when you feel that you're back into dissonance again, suddenly the tonality clears, the harmony clears, and you're in almost tonal, with clearly tonal harmonies in some cases. Yes. 
And, and this is really pointing to what the big moment of redemption, as it were, at the end of the piece, isn't it? But perhaps you could talk through how this prepares itself, because, again, there's a very simple musical process that leads to this final resolution. Yes, the trombones have had that dissonance resolution, dissonance resolution, but that disappears. And in fact, at the end, instead of those suspensions, we've just got those consonant thirds, haven't we, on the cellos, pizzicato and the trombones? Yes, the suspensions which have been happening in the trombones and other instruments, the cellos, whatever, they're just very plain sequences of thirds at the very end of the work. That's the underpinning, as it were, isn't it, to the, the final flowering yes. of Crooks Fidelis on the clarinet? Yes, that's the underpinning uh, resolution, if you like, of all the tensions which have been happening from bar one of the piece, underpinning the clarinet tune, which combines the Crooks Fidelis with some of the Scottish folk patterns which I've been using throughout the work. It is an extraordinary moment when, without really distorting your basic ingredients in the least, they suddenly turn into something which could almost simply be a piece of Scottish folk music. Well, uh, it's something which I'm very close to, having lived here for all those mm. years, and it's something which I feel is very crucial to a composer's output. You get a lot of input from the local music, and I think that's a very healthy relationship. I hope it is, and it has been with composers right through the ages. Mm. This high art, low art, and never the twain shall meet attitude is a very recent <laughs> phenomenon, isn't it, in, in, oh, in yes. musical history? It is extraordinary. I get so much mm. flack for being tonal. Well, um, that's how one thinks, and uh, <laughs> there we are. And 
I don't think for me that will ever change and ever has changed, mm -hmm. although a lot of my music does get a long way from that kind of very overt tonality, as in this piece. Mm. But um, at this ending here, mm. I think it goes home in a very real sense of the word, and I don't think I could have done it in any other way. I know it's very obvious, but I think sometimes the very simplest, the most obvious ideas, those are the ones which really work. <laughs> well... Thank you, and I think that's a beautiful place to, to end our discussion, Max. That's been fascinating for me to sit here. It really does help, I think, to have the score opened up like that, and not just in an analytical way, in a way that takes you to the, the nature of the piece and the nature of the thinking. I think that's a key word here. And it does help to have such a marvellous orchestra and such a wonderful conductor, and I would like yes, to play... Yes, very much indeed. Today. Thank you. Well, I think it's time we hand it over to that marvellous orchestra, the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, Lena Bernard Doherty, conductor Leo Hussain, for a performance, Max, of your Reel of Seven Fishermen. <laughs> <laughs> 